Welcome to Sane Society. I'm Ben. And I'm Chandler. We're going to cover some kidnappings or the history of kidnapping and one specific case that was um, world famous at the time. This is kind of my passion project. Yep. <laughs> she's been, she's got a white van. She says she's almost there. I'm so, so close. Yep. <laughs> the Just, problem is I don't really like kids that much. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's crazy is? Like, I don't like adults, but, you know, or like kids like me and people can't figure it out. They're like, why do kids no, like you? Literally, my sister-in-law, she was like, the, she was like, I know you're not really a kid person, but like when we have like family get together, she's like, the kids all like gravitate towards you. I'm like, right. yeah, I don't know why. I don't yeah. understand. Well, I just had to explain to people before. It's like, it's like, I think the reason kids like me or I like, I, I prefer kids than adults because they're not tainted by life yet. <laughs> I mean, for most adults, I'm like, fuck See, off. My problem so. is like, I have no patience for it. So right. like any type of like tantrum, I'm like, no. Well, I, it's not exactly, I have patience for it. I'll tell kids, like, try again, you know. <laughs> so if you ever want a babysitter out of the two, Ben's probably your go-to. Hey, I've babysitting yeah, before. Yeah, you have. Yeah. <laughs> people trust me with their kids, which is even scarier. It is insane. Who are these people? We should talk. <laughs> exactly. The art of abducting people, kidnapping <laughs> <laughs> people um, dates back centuries. And mainly it was um, with aristocrats, royalty, that would get kidnapped by one country or city-state, hold them for ransom. And most of the time, the people who were abducted were treated very well. They were treated mm -hmm. with respect. and Because like, they were still like nobles. Exactly. And some of the more well-known historical kidnappings through the years, through the centuries, I should say, one that always pops up is when Caesar was kidnapped by Sicilian pirates. And I just love how this went down. Caesar was Caesar. You hear all these stories about him, his personality. Well, they held Caesar like captive for like over a month. And I didn't know that. Yeah, it was like 75 AD. So they held him for like a month. And evidently Caesar was just like, you know, fuck you guys, whatever. And then he was insulted when they demanded only like 20 talents. And he's like, <laughs> he was you like, you know, you morons, yeah. ask for more. <laughs> and he told him literally, like, he should ask for 50. And he joked that he would um, seek revenge as soon as, as soon as he was freed. Well, yeah. sure enough, he did. He got freed, he got a small army, hunted them down, and killed them all. Oh, my gosh. Well, listen. <laughs> killed them all, and he, like, cru actually crucified them. I'm sorry. But, is this what um, Liam Neeson's movie was based off of? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he. He got his ridges as class. He hunts them down, and he ends up crucifying all of them. Uh, another well-known is, is, like, the patron saint of Ireland uh, was actually abducted and brought to that country at one time. Another famous one you see many movies about, kind of the premise of Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. During the Third Crusade, the British king, Richard I, left the Middle East on his way back. He was abducted, I think, through Austria or something like that. But he was being held... The ransom demanded for him, it was Emperor the Henry VI, I believe, the Holy Roman Emperor, so it was Austria, demanded a ransom 150,000 marks, which was equivalent to twice the annual revenue of the British um, oh crown. So this is where the Robin Hood comes in, because at this time, Richard Lionheart was you know, yeah, yeah. being held captive. And to pay that ransom, they hiked the taxes unbelievably hard. Right. So this is where you see like Robin Hood, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. tax collectors. So they hiked it up, and there's just crippling taxes. But they end up getting it, and they secured the ransom for Richard, and he was released, and he returned to England and uh, consolidated his power. You know, he ended up perishing a few years later in France during the war. So you know, there's a couple like historical ones just for you know your gratification there. Kidnapping, as we know it, is derived um, from kid, you know, means child, and from nap. 
Which is to Snatch. So right. Pretty easy. Which is a great movie. Have you seen Snatch? Yes. So good. I've seen a couple different versions of Snatch. One's, really? Yeah. One's on pay-per-view on the adult, on the adult channel. Okay, the hotel, so. not the one I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm the one with Brad Pitt. Yeah, so be careful what you um, Google and look <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah, be careful. <laughs> Anyways, uh, back to the topic. <laughs> it has come to mean any illegal capture or detention of a person, people against their will, regardless of age, such as on ransom. Since six, 1768, the term abduction has also been um, used. Kidnapping was first recorded being used in 1673. Now, in criminal law, kidnapping is um, taking away the aspirations of a person against a person's will, usually to hold the um, person in false imprisonment and confinement without legal authority. This is often done for ransom or further uh, furtherance of another crime. The majority of jurisdictions in the United States retain the aspiration element for kidnapping, where the victim must be confined in a bound area against their will um, and um, moved. Any amount of movement will um, suffice for the requirement of the definition of kidnapping. When we think of kidnapping, child abduct- abduction, there's various different ones out there. You know, bride kidnapping. Uh, scary. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but they do say that most of the time it's like without, it's like not the, like the bride wants to go, but it's right. against the parents' wishes or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, dad thinks he's a dirt bag, so they can just do it anyways. <laughs> you know, then you have, you know, parental child abduction, which is what we usually see That's with the, the Amber Yeah, exactly. Cults, which we'll have to cover sometime. Well, but not even, it's not even like the cult kidnapping right. people. It's people hiring someone to kidnap their child or loved one right. from a cult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like deprogrammers. Yeah, which is still illegal, guys. <laughs> yeah. But still, I get it from a parent's standpoint. Oh, 100%. Your kid's gone off the fucking reservation. I wouldn't hire like, someone. I'd snatch my kid myself. Yeah. Like, They've gone off the reservation before you know it. They're drinking blood in the backyard or you know, around the <laughs> altar. So. You know, with kidnapping comes, uh, most people probably heard of some of our listeners, Stockholm Syndrome, where you, you start to sympathize with your captor. Which Patty Hearst is like the most famous. Yeah. So that's out there. They have tiger kidnapping, whereas I'll take Chandler's dogs to force her to do something she doesn't want to. Oh, my God. <laughs> that would work. That would work. It was just taking a loved one or someone that you care about yeah. to force them to, uh, to commit a crime. So there's a couple there. Kidnapping around the world is still very prevalent. Somalian pirates or you know, third oh, world yeah. countries, they'll do that and um, seek ransoms. The art of seeking ransom was just seen here recently with the pipeline shut down on the <laughs> East Coast. They end up paying $5 million for that ransom attack. No way. Yeah, they get their shit back. Wow. So they end up having to pay around, so they were like screwed. So. Dang. So there's some, there's some of the background there. Now, the first kidnapping in the United States that had a ransom note attached to it was a kidnapping of Charlie Ross. And it was actually in uh, July 1 in 1874. Two little boys were abducted in front of their family mansion. The boys were named Charlie and Walter um, Ross. They were four and six year, years old. Two men who kidnapped and had given the boys candy on previous occasions. That's right, kids. No candy. Yeah, started out <laughs> early. They weren't. They weren't dumb. Yeah, exactly. But uh, one day, the men told boys to climb into their buggy. Well, buggy, a, yeah, <laughs> aka the white van, and promised to buy them firecrackers. Ooh, yeah, that part would got me. I was like, ooh, fire, cool. Uh, the boys boarded and they drove off into the city. Charlie would never be seen again. As they drove further away, Charlie wanted to go home, began to cry naturally. 
Miss stopped in front of the store and gave Walter 25 cents. He entered the store. And and started, Walter's the older boy, yeah? Yep. Okay. And started to choose firecrackers. Uh, then the men drove away with Charlie. So that's how Walter... Which I think it's odd. They started off taking both of them and then yeah. just like abandoned the yeah, older I, kid. Yeah, so I don't know. They just figured they could One would be easier, yeah. yeah. So the boy's father, Christian Ross, uh, thought the boys were playing in the neighbor's yard. But soon the neighbor told him that he saw the boys traveling in a buggy. The father began to search for his sons naturally, and, we, and he would continue up to his death in 1897 searching for Charlie. Mm. He didn't tell his wife he was recovering from an illness in Atlantic City, but two days later she found out when he began advertising uh, in the newspaper for their son's return. A stranger found Walter and returned him to his father. Uh, two days after, the father received a crude note saying this was the first ransom note that Charlie would be released for a sum of money on July 7th and came another note demanding $20,000 at the time, which is a lot of money. Yeah, so $20,000 astronomical amount back then. Uh, the father tried to follow the instructions, but could never make contact with the kidnappers. <sighs> now, later that year, what was interesting, please. probably like they probably killed that kid and I'm like, well, crap, what do we do? Yeah, now? exactly. Yeah. And then later that year, interestingly enough, uh, police were investigating the kidnapping of a Vanderbilt child. I would, yeah, filthy rich and get mm-hmm. some money out of them and found a ransom note in that case that matched closely to the one of Charlie Ross. Uh, they identified the handwriting of fugitive um, convict William Mosier. Mosier was killed during a burglary in Brooklyn, but his partner Joseph Douglas identified Mosier as a kidnapper, Charlie Ross. Douglas died insisting that only Mosier had known where Charlie was um, being held. Which means he wasn't being held anywhere. Yeah, exactly. So, Like unless he just gave him away to another family, which I doubt. Yeah. I don't think he got sold in uh, indentured servitude anywhere. Probably not. Um, but that was the story of Charlie Ross. That was the most significant kidnapping in America. The first one had the ransom note attached to it until the early 20th century with... In 1927, Charles Lindbergh became an international celebrity after becoming the first person to fly solo and nonstop across the Atlantic Ocean in his monoplane, Spirit of St. Louis. This fame is is what would eventually lead to what many call the crime of the century. On March 1st, 1932, around 10 p.m., Betty Gow, the nurse for Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, went to check on the baby and discovered that he was gone. Charles Jr.'s nursery was on the second floor of the Lindbergh home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Gow quickly reported the baby's dis- disappearance after finding his window open and muddy footprints on the floor. A search of the premises was immediately made, and a ransom note demanding $50,000, which is over $900,000 um, today, was found in the nursery windowsill. The Lindberghs immediately called the Hopewell police, who then reported the kidnapping to the New Jersey State Police, who assumed charge of the investigation. Now, during the search of the kidnapping scene, along with the traces of mud on the floor, investigators found footprints in the mud under the nursery window. Outside the window, a section of ladder used to reach the boys' bedroom was found. It was later determined that there had been two sections of a ladder used to reach the second floor window, and the ladder had broken where the two sections met together. No bloodstains or fingerprints were found at the scene. Now, the next day, after a conference with Attorney General FBI and the FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover contacted headquarters of the New Jersey State Police at Trenton. He officially informed the state police that they would have the full assistance and cooperation of the FBI in bringing about the apprehension of the people responsible for the kidnapping. 
there was no federal jurisdiction at this time for kidnapping, taking people across the state lines. Uh, over the next few weeks, the Bureau would act um, merely as a supporting the capacity for the state police. However, in May 13th of 1932, the president directed that all government investigative agencies should place themselves at the disposal of the state of New Jersey. Over two weeks went by as Lindbergh asked um, friends to communicate with the kidnappers, and they made widespread appeals for the kidnappers to start negotiations. At this time, investigators contacted various criminal contacts in an attempt to reach out to the kidnappers, and numerous clues were advanced and exhausted. Finally, on March 16th, a second ransom note was received by Lindbergh by mail and postmarked Brooklyn, New York, on March 4th. In this note, the ransom demand was increased to 70000 which is over $1.2 million today. It was at this point that through the Lindbergh's attorney, Henry Breckenridge, that private investigators were hired and brought on into the investigation. Just four days after the last, a third ransom note was received by Lindbergh's attorney, informing that an intermediary appointed by the Lindbergh's would not be accepted and requesting a note in a newspaper instead. That same day, Dr. John Condon, a retired school principal, published in the Bronx Home News and offered to act as a go-between. The following day, a fourth ransom note was received by Condon, with the kidnappers agreeing to communicate through him. This was then approved by Lindbergh. On March 10, 1932, Dr. Condon received $70,000 in cash as ransom from the family and immediately started negotiations for payment using newspaper columns to communicate with the kidnappers under the code Josephy. Jophacy. Jaffsy. Jaffsy. I think so. I don't know. Yeah. On March 12th, Dr. Connor received a fifth ransom note. These are going to rack up, by the way. I know. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> this note was um, delivered by Joseph Perrone, a taxi cab driver who had been given the instructions to deliver it to Condon from an unidentified stranger. Now, the message stated that, that another note would be found beneath a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from an outlying subway station. The note, the six, was found by Condon giving further instructions directing him to meet a man who called himself John at Woodlawn Cemetery near 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. Now, upon meeting at the cemetery, Dr. Condon asked a stranger to provide proof of the child's identity. Later on, on March 16th, a baby's sleeping suit was provided as proof of the boy's identity along with a seventh ransom note. The suit was delivered to the family and positively identified as belonging to Charles Jr. Now, Condon continued his advertisements through the newspaper, and five days after the last, an eighth ransom note was received insisting on complete compliance and advising that the kidnapping had been planned for a year. 28 days after the kidnapping, a ninth ransom note was received by Condon, threatening to increase the demand to 100000 The 10th ransom note, they're just going to keep racking up, guys. I think this yeah. is the most ransom notes in any case ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 10th was delivered on April 1st, 1932, and instructed Condon to have the money ready the following night. The 11th ransom note was given to Condon the next day by yet another taxi driver who just asked, uh, as the first said, he received it from an unknown man. This note, like the last, delivered in person, gave instructions to where the, note, the next note could be found. Dr. Condon found the 12th ransom note under a stone in front of a greenhouse um, in Bronx, New York. The same evening, by following the instructions contained in the 12th note, Condon again met whom he believed to be John and attempted to reduce the demand to $50,000. The $50,000 was then handed to the stranger in exchange for a receipt and the 13th note. This note gave instructions to the effect that the kidnapped child could be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. 
Two extensive searches were done near Martha's Vineyard, and both were unsuccessful. Neither Charles Jr. nor the boat were found. On May 12, 1932, the body of Charles Lindbergh Jr. was found badly decomposed about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home. Discovery was made by William Allen, an assistant on a truck driven by Orville Wilson, and the body was partially buried just 45 feet from the highway. The boy's head was crushed. There was a hole in the skull. The body was um, positively identified and was cremated the very next day. Which I think is so weird. Why would they cremate it that fast? I guess there's no, like, DNA or anything back then, so I guess why keep it? Yeah, and if it's already badly decomposed, it's probably not much to be... I just thought it was weird that it was that quick. Yeah. Because that wouldn't happen today, you know? Well, you couldn't really embalm it because his body was holding anything. right, I know. That's true. The coroner's examination showed that the child had been dead for about two months and that the death was caused by a blow to the head. This most likely meant that Charles Jr. had been murdered the very night he was abducted. The discovery of the body of the boy pushed investigators to look in a new direction. And on May 23rd, the FBI in New York City informed banks in greater New York that the Bureau was the coordinating agency for all government activity in the case and a close watch for the ransom money was requested. A few days later, the New Jersey State Police announced an offer of a reward of $25,000 for information resulting in the apprehension, conviction of the um, perpetrators. Copies of the reward flyer were sent to government and police agencies across the country. The resulting onslaught of tests, which always happens, of course, slowed down the investigation uh, investigation as each had to be thoroughly researched, and more than a year would go by while the family waited for answers. There were literally thousands of leads from all over the U.S., which were followed and investigated, all leading to nothing. The activities of the known and suspected members of the so-called Purple Gang of Detroit, which, hey, hey, if you listen to our uh, Valentine's Day massacre, um, then you know who the Purple Gang are. Um, And uh, various other rumors and allegations concerning this gang were carefully and thoroughly investigated. Registries of boats were examined in a futile attempt to locate the boat Nellie, on which the baby was to have been found, according to the 13th and last ransom note. Records of cemetery employees who were employed in various uh, cemeteries in certain sections of New York City and near Hopewell, New Jersey, were also examined. Hundreds of photographs and descriptive data of known criminals of all types and other possible suspects were also given to the few eyewitnesses in the case in an endeavor to identify the mysterious John. Investigators even encouraged Dr. Conan to prepare a transcript of all conversations had with John on March 12th and April 2nd, the dates on which Dr. Conan personally contacted the kidnapper in order to negotiate the return of Charles Jr. and the payment of the ransom. The conversations were during March 1934, transcribed in detail in phonographic records by Dr. Condon, who imitated the pronunciations and dialect of John. This helped investigators to further determine the nationality, education, and character of the kidnapper. Examination of ransom notes by handwriting experts resulted in virtually unanimous opinion that all of the notes were written by the same person. Experts also determined that the writer was of German nationality but had been in America for some time. Which is so crazy. Which is interesting that they could pick that up. It must have been like certain... Like phrasing or something. Yeah, because what's interesting about German evidently is like one of those languages like there are like specific words for things you would we don't have here right. I mean, it's very specific so it's kind of crazy but i just wonder just how like, that trend people are smart man there are some really smart people yeah the fbi until the discovery have been working in an advisory capacity in may 
13th of that year, 1934, President Herbert Hoover authorized the Bureau to serve as a primary federal agency on the case, and the full resources of the U.S. Department of Justice were committed to the investigation of the crime. Public outrage at the time led the U.S. Congress, we have to backtrack to 1932 when this first happened, the outrage in this crime led Congress to pass what was known as the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Lindbergh Law, in June 22, 1932. So just like a few months later. Yeah. Like that's, you know, I mean, when they act like, you know, the government can't do anything quickly, it's bullshit. Because it look is. at this. The day, that day would have been Charles's second birthday, Charles Jr.'s second birthday. Now, the Lindbergh Law made kidnapping across state lines a federal crime, along with uh, causing any physical harm, and is also punishable by death. So it made a capital offense. Several states also passed their own versions. They were known as Little Lindbergh Laws on the state level, cover acts that, you know, that did not cross state lines. Now, in some states, if the victim was physically harmed in any manner, it qualified as capital punishment. And interesting enough, there's only one case, maybe we'll cover it in the future, of Chessman in California where he was the only one put to death for a non-lethal kidnapping. So it's That's an interesting crazy. read. However, in like 1968, the death penalty part of the Lindbergh Law was uh, stricken as unconstitutional, violating the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, right. basically because the jury could pass a death sentence when it's the judge that should it's be deciding. Right. Yep. So the president during this time had made a pro- proclamation requiring the return to the Treasury of all gold and gold certificates, and it was a valuable aid to the case. Because forty um, of the fifty thousand dollars in ransom money had been paid in gold certificates, and at the time of the proclamation, a large portion of this money was known to be outstanding. The investigation now specifically centered on the recovery and identification of these certificates. On January seventeenth, nineteen thirty-four, a letter was issued by New York City Bureau Office to all banks and their branches in New York, requesting an extremely close watch for the ransom certificates. And in February nineteen thirty-four. All bureau offices were supplied with copies of the bureau's revised pamphlet containing the serial numbers of ransom bills. The New York City Bureau Office distributed copies of this pamphlet to each employee handling currency in banks, clearinghouses, grocery stores, um, and selected communities, insurance companies, gasoline filling stations, airports, department stores, post offices, and telegraph companies. <laughs> this was followed by frequent personal contacts with bank officials and with individual employees in an effort to keep interest alive in the case. For seven months, no gold certificates were discovered. On August 20th, 1934, and extending into September, a total of 16 gold certificates were found, most of them in the vicinity of Yorkville and and Harlem. As each bill was recovered, a color pen marking the locations of the recovered bills was inserted on a large map of the metropolitan area, thus indicating the movement of the individual or individuals who might be passing the ransom money. Keeping up with the cooperation policy previously established with the New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police Department, teams composed of representatives of each of these police agencies and special agents of the Bureau were organized to personally contact all banks in the greater New York and Westchester counties. Keeping in constant contact with the various banks who were discovering the bills, they were able to quickly determine what businesses had turned in the certificates. As a result, it then became possible for the um, investigators to trace the bills to the person who had originally passed them. For the first time in the history of the case, the investigators succeeded in finding that the description of the individual passing these bills fit exactly that of John as described by Dr. Condon. Around 1 p.m. on September 18, 1934, the assistant manager of Corn Exchange Bank 
and Trust Company at 125th and Park Avenue in New York City, called the New York City um, Bureau Office, to advise that a $10 gold certificate had been discovered a few minutes previously by one of the tellers in the bank. Investigators quickly ascertained that this bill had been received at the bank from a gasoline station located at 127th and Lexington Avenue in New York City. Upon visiting the gas station, agents interviewed the attendant and found that the certificate was used to pay for five gallons of gas three days prior on September 15th. Being suspicious of a $10 certificate, which is pretty good on this tennis part. He I wrote, know, super smart. Yeah, he wrote down the license plate number of the customer's car. The license plate number was issued to Bruno Richard Hopman. Hotman. 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 <laughs> of 1279 East 222nd Street, Bronx, New York. Federal and local authorities quickly put Hotman's house under surveillance. They kept their vigil through the night until at approximately 9 a.m. on September 19, 1934, an individual closely fitting the description of John, as supplied by Dr. Condon, left the home and got into a vehicle parked nearby. He was promptly taken into custody. Bruno Hopman was a 35-year-old German carpenter who had been in the U.S. for approximately 11 years. A $20 gold ransom certificate was found on his person. He also fitted perfectly that of John, as described by Condon. In his home, investigators found even more proof that this was in fact the man who had taken the ransom money from Dr. Condon more than two and a half years earlier. They found a pair of shoes, which had been purchased with a $20 ransom bill, were covered on September 8th. Another set of ransom certificates in excess of $13,000 were found stashed in Hopman's garage. In the next couple of days, Hopman was positively identified by both Joseph uh, Perone, the cab driver, um, as the individual from whom he received the fifth ransom note, and by Condom himself as John, to whom he had paid the ransom. It was also discovered that he was in possession of a Dodge sedan automobile, which answered the description of that scene in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping. Samples of Hopman's handwriting were flown to Washington, D.C. to be compared to the writing on the previous ransom notes. The specimens were remarkably similar. Personal characteristics and writing habits, which resulted in a positive identification by the handwriting experts. Further investigation uncovered that Hopman was a native of Saxony, Germany. He had a criminal record for robbery and had spent time in prison. After two failed attempts of sneaking into the country legally via ship, he arrived in New York City in November 1923, having stowed away on board the ship George Washington. On October 10, 1925, Hopman married Anne Schofler, a New York City waitress, and the two had a son, Manfred. Manfred, that's a German name for sure. Oh, yeah. In 1933. Which is crazy that he like literally had a baby like a year after killing yeah. a baby. Well, he said he had money. He's like, I can afford a kid now. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Up until March of 1932, Hopman had been working as a carpenter. However, a short while after March 1, the day of the kidnapping, he um, began to trade rather extensively in stocks and never worked again. So, and there's further proof of the involvement of Charles Jr., Hopman was indicted in the Supreme Court uh, in Bronx County, New York, on charges of extortion on September 26th. And on October 8th of 1934, in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, he was indicted for murder. Two days later, the governor of the state of New York honored the requisition of the governor of New Jersey for the surrender of Hopman, and on October 19th, he was removed to the Hunterdon County Jail in Flemington, New Jersey, to await trial. The trial began on January 3, 1935 at Flemington, New Jersey, which would last five weeks and be known as the trial of the century. Reporters swarmed the town and every hotel room was booked. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. 
In exchange for rights to publish Hopman's story in, the, in their newspaper, Edward Riley was hired by the New York Daily Mirror to serve as Hopman's attorney. So basically, they paid for his attorney in exchange for his story. Hey, why not? I mean, I mean, I, I'd do it to get a free uh, yeah. lawyer. I'm sure that attorney got paid pretty well, too. Evidence gets Hopman included $20,000 of ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleging that the handwriting and spelling were similar to those contained in the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts pointed out the similarities between the ransom notes and his handwriting. The defense um, called an expert to rebuff the evidence, while two other potential witnesses declined to testify with one demanding $500 before the defense basically told him to kick rocks for that one. Right. Uh, several other so-called experts for the defense just never testified. Which means they were probably getting paid not to testify yeah. by, who do you think? Huh? Who do you think? I don't know. I'd say the Lindberghs. They had money, that's for sure, at this time. The state introduced photographs demonstrating that part of the wood from the ladder that was found outside the nursery window matched the plank from the floor of Hopman's attic. It matched the type of wood, grain, and et cetera. Conda's address and telephone number, which I found interesting, number were written in pencil on a closet door of Hopman's home. And Hopman told the police that he had written Condon's address. Get this. I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit of a record of it. Maybe I was just in the closet and I was reading the paper and put it down. The address. I can't give you an explanation about the telephone number. Which is not a great defense. No. No. Not at all. A sketch that was found that represented a ladder in one of Hopman's notebooks, and Hopman said this picture and other sketches therein were the work of a child. What child? Why do you have a strange child writing yep. I'm pretty sketches sure that, in your notebook? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And your one-year-old, I'm pretty sure, wasn't doing it. Yeah. Well, the kid, yeah. yeah was like ladders? Yeah. Like what? Despite not having an obvious source of earned income, Hopman had bought a $400 radio, approximately uh, about $7,800 in today, and sent his wife on a trip back to Germany. Hopman was identified as the man to whom the ransom money was delivered. Other witnesses testified that it was Hopman who had spent some of uh, the Lindbergh gold certificates and that he had been seen in the area of this state on the day of the kidnapping and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and had quit his, his job two days later. Hopman never sought another job afterward, yet continued to live comfortably. When the prosecution rested its case, the defense opened with lengthy examination of Hopman. In his testimony, Hopman denied being guilty, insisting that the box of gold certificates had been left in his garage by a friend, Isidore Fish. He's always a friend. Yeah, you always have some sketchy friend, um, who had then returned to Germany in December of 1933 and had died there in March of 34. Hopman said that he had one day found a shoebox left behind by Fish, which Hopman had stored on the top shelf of his kitchen broom closet, later discovering the money, which he found to be about $40,000, Hopman said that because Fish had owed him about $7,500 in business funds, Hopman had kept the money for himself and had lived on it since January of 34. The defense called Hopman's wife, Anna, to corroborate the Fish story. On cross-examination, she admitted that while she hung her apron every day on the hook higher than the top shelf, she could not remember seeing the, any shoebox. Uh, she just uh, sold her husband down the road. Uh-huh. Uh, Oh, I didn't think you have testify against your spouse, but you didn't. Ha- you don't have to, okay. but you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, she's like, okay. <laughs> Later, rebuttal witnesses testify that Fish could not have been at the scene of the crime and that he had no money for medical treatment when he died of tuberculosis. 
Fish's landlady testified that he could barely afford the $3.50 weekly rent of his room. I wonder what that's equivalent to nowadays. And also, who's going to just leave behind thousands of dollars? Yeah, exactly. I'm stuffing that well, shit. Well, then hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm stuffing you know that I mean? shit down my pants and taking it with yeah. me. Yeah. It wasn't like there were security checks on boats back to Germany. No, exactly. <laughs> In his closing summation, the defensive argument was that the evidence against Hopman was entirely circumstantial because no reliable witness had placed Hopman at the scene of the crime, nor were there fingerprints found on the ladder or the ransom notes, or anywhere in the nursery. On February 13, 1935, the jury returned a verdict. Hopman was found guilty of murder in the first degree. The sentence was death. His attorneys appealed quickly to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals, which at the time was the state's highest court. And the appeal was argued on June 29th of 1935. The governor at the time uh, secretly visited Hopman in his cell, um, on October 16th, and was accompanied by a stenographer who spoke German fluently. The governor urged members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit Hopman. In late January of 1936, um, while saying he still had no position on the guilt or innocence of Hopman, Hoffman cited evidence uh, that the crime was not a one-person job, which I totally agree with. And he directed parties to continue a, an investigation in an effort to bring all par- parties involved to justice. It became known among the press on March 27th that Hoffman uh, was asking us for a second reprieve of Hopman's death. This is really confusing, Hoffman and Hopman, sorry. Uh, a second reprieve of his death sentence, um, and he was seeking opinions about whether the governor at the time had an issue, had the right to issue a second reprieve. On March 30th of 1936, um, Hopman's second and final appeal um, asking for clemency from New Jersey was denied. He later announced that his decision would be the final legal action in the case, and he would not grant another reprieve. Interesting, there was a detective by the name Parker there in New Jersey that conducted an independent investigation in 1936 and obtained a signed confession from a former Trenton attorney, Paul Wendell, creating a sensation resulting in a temporary stay as a Mercer County grand jury investigated the confession and arrest. However, the case fell apart as Wendell recanted his confession and said it was coerced. Hopman turned down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence to life in prison. He was electrocuted April 3rd, 1936. Talk about getting death penalties done quick back then. I know. Doesn't happen anymore. No. After his death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions about the way in which the investigation had been run and the fairness of the trial, including witnesses, witness tampering and planned evidence. Twice in the 1980s, Anna Hopman sued the state of New Jersey for an unjust, I mean, she lived a long time. I know. For unjust execution of her husband. The suits were dismissed due to prosecutorial immunity and because the statute of limitations had run out. She continued fighting to clear her husband's name until her death in age 96 in 1994. Probably shouldn't have testified against him either. Yeah, no joke, lady. Now we get to get into some fun theories because what I didn't put in earlier in the episode but I find really fascinating is that Charles Lindbergh was not a good dude. So he, like, later in life, he was, like, a big, I don't know, like, I guess, like, not proponent, but he was really against the U.S., like, joining the World War II. Yeah, he went and visited um, Germany, yeah. Yeah, Nazi Germany. Um, so a bunch of people called him a Nazi uh, sympathizer. Mm-hmm. But he also 
which is why I think he probably was a Nazi sympathizer, is that he was actually super into eugenics, which if you don't know what eugenics is, race. it's basically, yeah, that. It's basically the thought of, you know. The perfect. The perfect race and com- having people have babies who are like perfect specimens. So you have this like, you know, perfect Aryan race. And he was a big fan of it. So he was not a great person. No, a lot of these famous historical people are not good people. Yeah, they really aren't. It's like, you know, I'm a huge baseball fan. And some of the most famous baseball players in history were outright biggest racists. Oh, or just yeah, yeah, yeah. Womanizers, just total dirtbags mm-hmm. because they're idolized because of sports. I mean, look here in Kansas City. People love Derek Thomas, but he was a piece of shit. Yeah. So alternative theories that were, have evolved through the years. And some of them, you know, you think back about it. But any t- trial like this, any conviction, there's always people looking back. It's like, okay, it was handled wrong. It was this. There's always two sides of it. Of course, OJ. I didn't. mean, I think that like Hopman was definitely involved, but do I think he was the only person? No. Of course, OJ's innocent. Oh yeah, if I did it. <laughs> I still think of Norm McDonald's skits in the nineties. I got him fired from the Saturday Night Live. What? You ever seen that? Yeah, no. check it out. He he always made jokes about OJ Simpson. They ended up getting fired for it because stop. One of the heads of NBC was a personal friend of OJ. Ugh. Now there's been a number of books that have been written about this, generally highlighting the inadequate um, police work at the crime scene, Lindbergh's interference in the investigation, ineffectiveness of Hopman's counsel, and weakness in the witnesses and physical evidence, in particular such as the origin of the ladder and the testimony of the witnesses involved with that ladder. Several people have suggested Charles Lindbergh was responsible for the kidnapping. It was implied that the baby was physically disabled, and here comes the eugenics part. Mm-hmm. Now, Lindbergh arranged for the kidnapping as a way to secretly move the baby to be raised in Germany. This is before Nazi Germany also had been killed automatically. Another theory is Lindbergh accidentally killed his son in a prank gone wrong. This a one's so, prank? Yeah, this thing's so cuckoo. Uh, you know, the kid's not even two yet, so I don't know fucking with his wife. It's just ass nine. Yeah, Lindbergh supposedly climbed the ladder and brought his son out the window, but dropped the child, killing him. So he hid the body in the woods and covered up the crime by blaming Hopman. I don't believe that one. Yeah. Here's one I've, I've never seen something about before on a show. Now, Robert Zorn had a 2012 book, Cemetery John, proposes that Hopman was part of a conspiracy with two other German-born men, John and Walter Knoll. Zorn's father, economist Eugene Zorn, believed that as a teenager he had witnessed the conspiracy being discussed. Ooh. Yeah. I bet that's a good read. Yep. That's some of the things out there. That's the Charles Lindbergh kind of rundown of that. So I definitely could totally see like something being wrong with the child right. and it, and because he was such a, you know, eugenics. Right. I like don't, mind. I don't know. Maybe that I don't know. I have to look at, do you know when he started getting the eugenics? Maybe because the baby was deformed that after that he started getting into, maybe, maybe I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, in the, in the thirties, eugenics was already a thing in Nazi right. in Germany. I mean, it wasn't well, Nazi Germany yet, but yeah. in Germany. Well, some of the scientists there, their belief of the master race, but eugenics wasn't, I think, quite there yet. In the thirties, later thirties, like mid thirties, but like thirty-two. Oh, I feel like they were already. Because I don't think Hitler came to power until like thirty-four or something. Maybe I don't know. Fact check us, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so. Now, kidnappings have not gone away. You've seen the news with some high-profile kidnappings through the years, like Frank Snatcher Jr., Patty Hearst is a well-known one for a lot of reasons. What was it, SLA? Yeah. Yeah. So they continue always looking for ransoms. It's extremely hard nowadays because 
technology and asking for ransom money is just it's impossible. You get tracked down so easily and it just never works. Anymore just it's sickos that have some sort of psychological problem. Right. You know, that, yeah, I can't remember the last time I heard of anyone being held for ransom. Yeah, but what's crazy is I think you told me is some of the stats behind the kidnappings is like only what one percent or actually Yeah. Shri- it, yeah, it was like one percent were from stranger kidnappings. Yeah. Which is crazy because that's the one you fear oh yeah i mean so statistically you should not be afraid of white vans or ice cream men i mean don't talk to them but like <laughs> it's probably not you know they're probably not gonna snatch you it's probably safer than talking to carny rats i don't know oh god that's honestly that's probably for real did i ever tell you my carnival story no but bagel fest was horrible on that tune they i don't know where they got these carnies but they were sketch <laughs> Well, you know, the carnival always comes to small towns area, like they did Mattoon, like for their festivals too, or like whatever yeah, yeah. you have. But like when I lived in Independence, Kansas too, they'd have one there for Neil Walla. But well, anyways, Independence is rough anyway. Oh, well, no, not Independence, Missouri, Independence, Kansas. Oh, Kansas. Yeah, it's, it's like any other small town down okay, there, but okay. there's Independence, Kansas. But, you know, for their Neil Walla festival, they'd have a carnival there too. But I was probably in Schnee at this time. I was junior, senior that summer between okay and you know what the zipper ride is yes of course well went to the hardware store that day and got some nuts and bolts put in our no. pockets and as we're spinning off we just emptied our pockets and so it starts kind of streaming down and we stop we start screaming and other people see it and they start screaming they stop the ride and everything they shut it down oh my god <laughs> probably traumatized some kids or some adults but and probably i would have been traumatized by that i'm like but, i'm never getting on another ride ever yeah, but ask me if i feel bad about it do you feel bad about it absolutely not i didn't think so i thought it was hilarious i still think it's hilarious <laughs> so uh, well thanks for listening guys you know do all the things rate review subscribe follow us on instagram we also have a facebook page um really helps us out if you would get on there yep help grow us if if you like what you hear, please pimp us out. We're not we're oh, not ashamed. To ask not for, at all. I'll yeah. be shameless over here, plugging yeah. it every which way. <laughs> so everybody, remember, mental health is important. Seek help if you need it. Uh, don't sit by yourself. Look for that person to help you. It doesn't matter who it is. There's lots of avenues out there to seek it. So on that note, everybody, be sure and take the portion like they used to take in ancient Greece. Talking to them, all they're doing taking a drink to take to go to sleep. Have a good day.